So Lisa, a while ago, I was having a conversation with one of the fellows that works with my company. And this person is relatively new in the DEI space as a practitioner. Um, you and I have uh, been in the DEI space for 20 blah, 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 blah years. We won't tell folks how many. Um, but this particular person had been in the DEI space for five to seven years. And we were having a great conversation about uh, their workplace in particular and some things that they wanted to see happen in the workplace, some changes, some no, this is being exclusive, even though in, the intentions are pure, having that conversation. And I had to give them the 80-20 rule, Lisa, that we truly cannot nice. spend a lot mm -hmm. of time convincing a small group of people that the work is necessary when we could be spending the time actually doing the work. And it was like, like explosive light bulbs came on in this person's head. And I'm just wondering how many of us have had to make some of those in the moment decisions around, do I need to keep making a case to this individual or do I need to back off and disengage or do I need to have influence where I can? And it, it's not an easy answer in the moment, in the context of it, but my fellow was really appreciative to have that conversation because I think now that person can redirect their energy. Um, but I'm sure that we can think of many times where we've had to make some decisions between persuasiveness and just simply influencing the moment or the context long-term. Yeah, I think um, that persuasion piece is really interesting because I definitely have dug my heels in previously, you know, at the beginning of my journey and tried to persuade slash push someone to feel a different way about something, right? And that's probably not the best way to go, but I do think we get caught up in the persuasion. And I think talking about that nuance around how does persuasion get in the way of us doing the work would be a really great conversation. All right, so let's dive in. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. Whether you run, ride, hike, or swim, you understand what it means to push harder, reach farther, and go the extra mile. This relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build endurance, boost energy, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging genetics and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. I love the meal recommendations that come with the analysis. It prompted me to add salmon into my meal rotations and I am loving it. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash feisty. That's insidetracker.com forward slash feisty and then use the code feisty at checkout. Whether you're competing in a triathlon or swimming to challenge yourself, Orca has fit-for-purpose swimwear designed to meet your needs. Innovation has always been part of Orca's DNA, 
And when it came to the development of their new triathlon wetsuits, a wide range of skill levels and different types of triathletes were taken into account. Whether you're looking for maximum flexibility, maximum buoyancy, or somewhere in between, Orca wetsuits are designed to help you achieve better performance in the water. It is performance made simple. For 15% off all items at orca.com, use the code IRONWOMEN15. So Lisa, maybe two or three months ago, I had a really great colleague of mine uh, send me this article about not making the business case for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I thought that was so interesting because, you know, that demonstrates my bias. I was opening up the article thinking that we were going to talk about yet again another approach to business cases for DEI when the author was basically saying, nah. We're beyond that. We're, we're beyond that in the arc of the DEI marketplace. We ain't doing it no more. How about that? We're not wasting our time creating multifaceted, alternate rationales for why this work is important. We're just going to do the work. Right. And that was like, oh, I love it. Because oftentimes when I'm doing DEI 101 or level setting with foundational information, I start there for many people that these are the various reasons why DEI is a good thing, whether it's business, whether it's altruistic, whether it's your market has changed and you have not caught up with it or, or stayed up with it. And therefore you're losing out from a business bottom line. So many different reasons for the yes to the DEI, but this article was saying, nah, we're not doing that no more. And I just, yeah, it was a completely different um, mind-bending perspective for me that now I've started to do it more. Um, I think I was doing it implicitly, but now I'm doing it very intentionally <laughs> of not doing that anymore. That's interesting um, because I hear all the time how we have to make the business case, how we have to persuade leaders to understand people in in endurance sports specifically about about why this is important and why this will make X profession better. And it is really predicated on we haven't even got out of the gate and I'm spending all of this energy persuading you why we need to even open the gate versus I'm just going to open the gate and I'm just going to keep walking through and I'm just going to be bringing you along with me, right? Like we're not even going to do this dance about opening the gate. Um, And I just... You know, it makes me think of a little bit around um, models of development, like identity development or other kinds of development models where there's a certain phase where people are all in, right? And they're telling everyone about it and they're trying to persuade everyone, this is the right way to do it, right? Yay! Like it's like really a prideful kind of um, moment in that person's development. And I think there's a little bit of an echo there with DEI work in terms of like, we are like getting in there and we are trying to persuade someone or an organization or a profession or an industry that this is what needs to happen, right? Yay, rah, 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 right? And we are so in it. We spend all of our energy in that persuasion place and nothing ultimately gets done because there's always a rebuttal as to why it takes too much time. It's too hard. Things aren't going to change. Right. And, um, 
it's so easy to get trapped there. Absolutely. It's, it's like this, it's almost like this purgatory, if you will, for, for my, my theological people and non-theological people, you know what I'm speaking of. It's kind of that in between Lisa, it's like being at a race and being stuck in transition. It's like, you know, you need to be moving forward, but you're not, you're just puttering around in transition, trying to figure out, you know, what's next and get everyone to go along with you in a particular direction. And that's not how this works. And you know, the the article that uh, spoke to not making the business case for diversity compared it to other values that are not uh, persuasive or not woven in through a persuasive perspective. So, for example, you don't see people running down the street talking about I need to make a business case for innovation or integrity or being resilient in a workplace or, you know, uh, uh, more solutions to new challenges. You don't have people making a rationale for it. They just do it. And so that's why I appreciate this approach of saying this is now such a fundamental piece of everyone's work and approach that we're no longer going to make a case for it because making the case in and of itself takes away the credibility. Yeah. So you're just operating from that immediate assumption that it's integrated. It is. It's important. And we're just going to move from that place. Right. So you're starting at one versus starting at zero, I suppose. Um, Yes. Yes. I, I think that a lot of DEI advocates do operate from zero, right? Kind of like that, that starting point, but they're also um, so invested that it's frustrating when people don't share that same level of investment. So they're just kind of, we've talked about throwing spaghetti at a wall before we've talked about energy vampires, right? So we're just getting through persuasion, right? Through persuasion is how I think um, we don't ever get off the starting blocks and it's super, super draining and not very effective, right? Like I've definitely dug myself in and tried to persuade someone of a point and it has not been successful, generally speaking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It It is exhausting and there will be some people that completely disavow what you're saying disavow the logic. And I think what's most disturbing, um, especially the last, what, 10 years or so, whether in politics or otherwise here in the United States, is that it has become less about data and information and more about either the messenger and the credibility of the messenger. And that's what's really disheartening to me. So I remember, I'll have to look it up and find it, Lisa. This was quite a few years ago. I believe President Obama was in office still at the time. And there was a young man that was giving his um, valedictory speech at high school, at a high school that was an extremely conservative high school. And he quoted basically this language about how everyone should be treated in such a way that they have uh, the same opportunities for the same outcomes, et cetera, et cetera. People thought that this was a statement by a Republican and all these people started clapping and standing up and so forth. And at the end of the speech, the student said that it was a quote directly from President Obama. And all these conservatives were like, I mean, it was like you could see the blood draining from their faces because 
they agreed with the sentiments of the quote, right, but they right. did not agree with the messenger of the quote. And to me, I think that's what's kind of getting my goat on certain things is that, you know, why is it that the da- the same data set that's presented by and accepted from a white male is not from a woman, a woman of color, a person of color, a BIPOC person, an LGBT person. I'm not understanding why the messenger ends up being such a um, a deterrent to being persuaded that certain things need to happen. You know, that that to me is what's so interesting. And so I realized that as a black female, that simply by showing up as who I am can discredit data for certain people. And therefore I've decided to win the game by not playing it quite often. And I just wonder how many companies are doing the same thing where they're like, we're going to win the game by not playing it anymore. Right. Because we're not going to jump through multiple Mm -hmm. hoops. Instead, we're going to remove the hoops and simply do the work. I think that's what's really interesting to me now about this whole persuasive piece. And it's likely people who experience more marginalization in our culture who spend more time persuading, right? Because they're already working from a place of deficit in terms of being like uh, the messenger, um, like President Barack Obama, right? Um, right, Because the content of what you're saying doesn't matter. It's who it's coming from. Therefore, you amp up the persuasive techniques as kind of a counter to that. But ultimately that prevents you from doing the work. So I think that there is certainly perhaps an overarching message that persuading friends and family and helping them understand and seeing, you know, the the reasons for the benefit of DEI, et cetera, that is itself considered, quote unquote, the work. But what this article is saying, the conversation you had with your fellow and what we're talking about is that it's not actually the work, Right. You haven't begun the work if you spend all your time spinning your wheels trying to persuade someone that you're credible or that there's a there's a business case for DEI. Right, exactly. You haven't done the work. And if you spend that amount of time persuading, do you then have the energy and the focus for the work or the next step of the work? I'm not quite sure that's the case, that you have the energy to do so or take that next step. And I think what's really profound is that the it's almost like a vicious cycle here. The very people that are most affected by not doing DEI work are the people that are doing the persuasion that are still at a deficit. And we just keep going round and round the mulberry bush on that because it's the very people that are trying to persuade others are the people that are not not winning, or at least I don't want to say win because it's not a win-loss. It's more progress. We're, we're not progressing. And so it just seems quite ludicrous to me. Like if if I am harmed in some physical way, God forbid, I don't sit there having a persuasive conversation with 911 saying, no, we really think you should come with the ambulance here. Like, really? No, they just show up because I've been harmed as a person. But we do that often with DEI that we have to convince that someone's hard before someone's harmed before we can do the mending, the healing, the processing, the fixing. And that's where I'm like, this is exhausting. And I'm not interested in being exhausted from the persuasion. I'm interested in being exhausted from the actual work, Mm -hmm. not playing Mm -hmm. that game. 
So what are some tangible tips then? So, cause it's so easy to get pulled into that point of persuasion where you encounter someone, you're doing education or you're trying to a- advocate for a point at your, your club or your business or something. Right. And you run into a resistance, um, you run into resistance. So therefore then you turn on, you put on your persuasion hat and you're trying to, uh, persuade the crap out of the situation, which actually just creates delays. And maybe that was the intention in the first place, right. Of the resistor. So what does that look like in practice? Since we're just trying to say barrel past that and just keep moving. Right. What do you think? That's a good question. I I'm going to, I'm going to do the the cardinal sin here and answer the question with the question. Um, I'm wondering to do that, to move forward. I'm wondering if we also have to somewhat assume and or demonstrate that the dissenters may be in the minority in some cases where, you know, someone who is silent, that doesn't mean that they're not for the forward progress. It just simply means they may not have the knowledge yet, or they may not have the comfort level yet. And so I just don't want to make it seem as if only the squeaky wheel gets the oil. There may be one person that's been saying in your organization, well, why do we have to do this? Why can't we just race? Why can't we just train? I don't understand why we got to consider this, that, and the third. And then there's 20 other people in your group, your organization, or your business that thinks, yeah, DEI is important. I'm just not quite sure how to go about it. And so therefore I haven't been as vocal because I do think that volume plays a role in the persuasiveness. Like how many organizations have we been a part of where, yes, you have one loud person, but again, it's just that one person and you have other people that are less, uh, have lesser voice, but they still have intention and passion for the work. I, I don't want us to get uh, discouraged by what we think are the numbers when that may not be the case. So I'm just yeah. wondering what those, yeah. what those number breakdowns are. Yeah. Which comes back to the 80, 20 rule, right. Um, that we have talked about before that we are so distracted by the loud people that are almost always in the minority that all of the folks who are, you know, moderately vocal or not vocal, not, not sharing, um, get left behind. And so if we, if we assume that the, the larger group of people in the organization are actually on board and then just start moving in that direction, then those angry people, loud people will probably just drop off or they'll get on board, right? Something, but, but my energy as a practitioner or as an advocate or as a friend, isn't going to be like sunk into changing that one person's mind. Um, because right. some people just also persuasion just doesn't work right because it feels aggressive or it feels like therefore my opinion is not valued because you're constantly trying to persuade me to think something else right. so there is right. probably a benefit to bypassing that um in that you won't then it doesn't give that person the opportunity to say my opinion doesn't matter. Stop trying to persuade me of your point of view. Like, da, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and that's, <laughs> this may be basic communication here, Lisa, is that I never understand the individuals that feel as if 
because you don't agree with them that you don't understand them. You can fully understand someone and still not agree. In fact, you may disagree more because you understand the nuances with which you're disagreeing. So to me, I'm like, mm. yeah, I, I think that's a basic communication point that crumbles oftentimes is that, oh, you just don't understand. No, I do understand. And I still disagree. I've even explained to you what I heard and you agreed that I agree. You, you agree that I understand. I just don't agree. And so I think, you know, there are some basic communication things that give us the audacity to think Lisa is not intelligent enough to get my point. And that's the only reason why she disagrees with me. No, Lisa is highly intelligent, can break down her perspective and your perspective and still disagree with it. That's what attorneys do all the time in mock court where they're assigned a case and they have to defend one side or the other in mock court, whether they agree with it or not. And so you can understand it while not agreeing with it. And I, I think that's one piece of the puzzle that maybe we can kind of advise folks on is to remember that intelligence is not the issue. Oftentimes it's the agreement that makes you assume or makes someone assume that you're not listening and they're not being heard. Mm -hmm, and what they're saying mm -hmm. is not being processed. And so disagreement and understanding can still exist in the same place. I think that could be one key. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. I do think there is a lot of that though, where someone isn't listening and isn't really hearing what someone is articulating. But I think perhaps the skill is to, to discern when the disagreement is um, a product of a lack of openness or a lack of listening versus I understand your point. I just don't agree with it. Right. Like, and I think that we don't do that enough and then we just get pulled into this persuasion. Um, so that's a really, I think that's a really good distinction for us to think about. Um, the other thing mm -hmm. that you made me think about was, you know, let's say I disagree with a particular issue, but the organization is moving in that direction anyway. Over time, as I move along with the organization and participate in whatever it is that they're doing, like my opinions might shift just organically and naturally because of exposure, right? So rather than the organization at the front end of the process trying to persuade me and get me 100% on board before we embark on the journey, like just get on the ship and see what happens, right? Because it's possible that over the course of a journey, there could be three months, six months, two years, right? Depending on what it is that I or others might actually just naturally shift through conversation and education and enlightenment around a particular issue versus someone just constantly badgering me and trying to persuade me to think differently. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I agree. Well, and that's where I remember when I was interviewing for my position at Towson, someone asked me about the resistance piece. And I still feel to this day, years later, that sometimes when you turn the heat up, if you will, in the room, that will, the, the changing of the context will either change the person or change the location of the person. So 
if if I've been trying to convince you, Lisa, that look, you don't need that hoodie on. You don't need it on. I've been trying to tell you for years, you don't need the damn hoodie on. If I stop persuading you, but the heat turns up, then you're either going to take the hoodie off or you're going to leave the hot ass room and go somewhere else. Pick which one. But the context has changed in such a way that you then have to consider your own yeah, yeah. choices and trajectory. Mm-hmm. And so the, I feel like there's something to the changing of the context. I don't know if I'm saying this clear, but I think there's something to the changing of the context that requires the person to consider their own changes. And I know that's a little mm-hmm. bit harder depending on the context. Like I was dealing with tenured faculty. There's a lot of incentive for them not to change their context, but there were some who did change their context. Well, what happens when you're in a context where people can move a little more freely? It's something that's, to consider. Yeah, that's such a good example of the hoodie and like, I don't want to take it off. I'm not going to take it off, right? Stop trying to persuade me to take it off. And then, okay, well then the content, we're going on this journey and that journey involves turning up the heat, right? So I have to make a decision around whether I'm going to then turn off the heat because it benefits me to t- not turn off the heat, to take off the hoodie. That benefits me. And I come to that decision on my own. Or I say, I don't want to be in this room anymore. I think that's such a brilliant example of how moving past persuasion to actually do the work will create change um, in just different and more um, multidimensional ways. Mm-hmm. Well, they're just going to sit there and sweat, Lisa. They're just going to sit there and sweat and be uncomfortable by choice. And, and you know, I think that's what's Oh, mind-blowing about a lot of these organizations and individuals that dig their heels in is that I'm like, even based on your perspective, which I don't agree with, even based on your perspective, you are very okay being uncomfortable because everyone around you has a, di- a different perspective and a different way of being. The context has a different way of being. And you have decided that you want to stay and be a disruptor in a space where you don't share values anymore. Why? Why? Help me understand why. If if there were a, I don't know, a race director or the president of your tri club or someone else that was in a leadership position in the organization that you didn't share their values, you would leave for lesser reasons. So why is it that we're okay with staying in an organization that's trying to make progress when it comes to DEI as a dissenter, but in any other situation, you're thinking, oh, I, I can just move. I can just change. I, oh, there's there's six different tri-clubs in the DMV area. Not a big deal. If I don't agree with this one, I can go to the next. We don't do that in other situations. And I wonder why that is. I think sometimes, mm. I, I don't want to just say it's being stubborn. I, th- yes, there are some people yeah. who are stubborn, yeah. but there are other people that are digging their heels in for specific reasons. And I'm always straining to understand why the digging of the heels is so important to them. And that's different trying to understand why they're digging the heels, they're digging their heels in versus trying to persuade them to undig themselves, right? Like they're two different things. Yes, 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 yes. Absolutely. Completely different things. And so, you know, with that, you know, um, what did my, my grandmother used to say all the time, uh, hit dogs will holler, meaning that I know that's a violent statement, but go with me here, is that basically it's saying those that feel either guilt or an implicit 
role in something will be the ones who speak up first. So if I say, you know, everyone in this room is, is using um, exclusive language rather than inclusive language. Well, the people who are doing their best to use inclusive language, they're gonna be like, yeah, we hear you and we're gonna keep working on it. The one person that's pissed off about using he, she, they, them is gonna be the one that speaks up because they feel personally challenged by a statement when it's like, why do we have to voice such resistance in such a way that makes it seem like it precludes us from doing the work? Mm -hmm. I'm not interested Mm -hmm. in engaging in that conversation. I'm interested in actually doing the work. So for the 80 other people in the room that want that inclusive language guide, I'm over here talking to them versus the person that's over there arguing with themselves about how they're doing such a great job. I'm just not interested in that argument. I'm not. Yeah, I do think um, this is an important thing to think about. You know, if you're, thank you, Louie, my little dog who's staring (laughs) up at me saying it's time for dinner, but he clearly agrees with everything that you're saying, Shauna. Our (laughs) co-host, our co-host, that's right. Yes. Yeah. um, And I just, I wonder whether... I just, I I wonder whether we can even get ourselves out of this snafu that we find ourselves in with this persuasion, getting stuck with the people who were dug in, trying to change their mind. You know, I just, can we, can we do that? Because I just think it's so hard, um, so hard to avoid that. Yeah, I, I don't know if, well... The, the one thing I do know, which circles back to our energy vampires conversation earlier is just around the making the very hard yet prudent choices about who we think we should engage with and who we should not engage with. Because I think sometimes we, and Lisa, you let me know if you've ever felt this way, where I felt defeated because I chose to disengage with someone not because I couldn't necessarily persuade them as far as the end result is concerned, but it's, I think it's partially just U.S. culture that you feel like you need to win an argument. But I also think too, that it felt like defeat in the moment because I knew that if this person was to change over time, it would be a seed that I planted now that I may never see the fruit of. I may, I may not, who knows, but I have to be in the long game of maybe it's the long game of persuasion versus the in the moment persuasion that we're really yeah, leading into. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I do think it might be a US culture thing as well. I'm sure this exists in other countries, but that, you know, the winning, the in the moment, that I have to persuade you now. Like, don't you see that this is the right way to do that? Is probably very much fostered in this cultural environment. And the long game, the more strategic, maybe it is persuasion, maybe it's more influence over time that um, is just less, um, we're just less equipped to engage that way because we're not taught to engage that way. And it's also this, um, the culture of kind of immediacy, right? Like I need like Amazon, right? I need a book and I can get it the same day with like a drone delivery or something or you know, when we were at Arizona State, 
just recently for the Outspoken Summit. Yeah. There's those little like machines that can deliver pizza to your, you know, like I need this stuff now. Like, I wonder if that translates into this kind of a, aggressive desire to persuade someone and get stuck there, which then just negates all the work you could be doing. Hmm. I think it's cultural. That's, <laughs> that's one thing I'm, I'm very convinced of, that it is cultural for sure. Definitely. Well, with this, I guess, Lisa, once again, we've come up with lots of thoughts and very few answers, but I will say my kind of stance is to be very prudent with short-term engagement, long-term engagement, or no engagement. I think that's where I land. Where do you land with with things, Lisa, and how you're going to comport yourself? Because it's tough. I think I would say to myself and to others, if you find yourself kind of sliding into this, I need to persuade you, and maybe it's not you don't under, maybe it's not persuasion isn't how you're thinking about it, but like, I need to get this person on board to think about it, stop and say, and look around the room, I guess, you know, the, the kind of like metaphorical room, right. Around like, who am I, who am I ignoring in this moment? Who could be actually on board and I'm just giving all my attention. I think that's something that I would encourage and I'm going to try and do myself, I think. Yes, 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 yes. And and those folks, Lisa, like we mentioned, may not be the most vocal people in the room. They have the most interest, but they may not be the loudest person that's beating their drum in the room. So I love that approach as well. All right. So are we ready to think about our hell yeah and our hell no nah here? Yes, we are. Hell yeah. Hell no. Nah. Oh, well, Lisa, let me just tell you, I, I'm just going to name my home state can't get right because it, it just can't get right on, on multiple levels. It can never get right. So I got a text message um, from a really close friend of mine. Uh, we both were born and raised in Virginia, educated in Virginia, all Virginia schools. And yeah, the Virginia Board of Education is still proposing this new curriculum that's taught in such a way that it, quote, doesn't make others feel bad. And we can infer others. Oh, my goodness. I know. I know. I know. We we can infer that other folks means white folks and white male folks. And to me, you know, what's interesting about this whole statement, again, from my home state, is that feelings. Isn't it interesting how some people's feelings are more important than others? That, you know, the feelings of white kids and their families is more important than the feelings of people of color and LGBT folks that are either misrepresented in curriculum or not represented at all in the curriculum. Those feelings are not important, but little white kids that are, oh my God, my fourth great grandfather enslaved people and I feel bad about it now is more important than I'm a little black kid and I don't see myself in 400 pages of American history. Maybe I'm not considered American. Maybe I'm not important enough. Maybe I don't have a particular heritage that's connected to this state or to this country. And I'm still trying to figure it out again. 
we are dealing with whose feelings are most yep. important. Yep. And it is never people of color, never LGBT folks. Yeah, I, I'm, as usual, I'm not okay with my home state. So there yes. you have it. Gosh, I feel like you just have an endless supply of hell nas from the state of Virginia. <laughs> it's Constantly. like always dishing up really juicy things that are highly problematic. And, and Lisa, you know what's problematic about my behavior with this? My behavior is problematic because I know you have siblings. I don't have blood siblings, but I can imagine. It's kind of like I can talk shit about my family. I can beat up my little brother, my little sister, but nobody else can. Right. It's like oh, I can talk shit about my home state, but I might not let anybody else do it. Right. And I feel like we as all of us that grew up in Virginia and maybe we went away to school, came back, et cetera. A lot of us have this you know, the saying is Virginia is for lovers. We have this love hate relationship with the Commonwealth of Virginia because it holds such an important place in our experiences and our memories, but you can examine all the warts on it more closely because it's your home, you know? And so anyway, love hate relationship with my home state of Virginia. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm two seconds away from uh, running from governor, uh, knowing that I would never be elected for one term because I would just tear shit up and start over oh but yeah you'd I be great i'd vote for you i'd move to I, Virginia, I love my state get get stateship citizenship or whatever it's called there so i could vote for you <laughs> you're, you're about to be my campaign manager girl what are you talking about oh I, my I goodness. need help i need help i need help oh uh, all right so what's what's our hell nah here or, or maybe we have a hell uh, yeah hell yeah you just did the hell nah with virginia so our hell yeah is also politically related, and it is because uh, Massachusetts elected five women into six of the statewide leadership positions this past midterm election. Um, and so uh, that is very exciting. And Massachusetts was one of the few states that has not had a woman, a woman, sorry, governor. Uh, Colorado is another one. Yay, Colorado. We still don't. Um, not, uh, so um so that was good so now i think it is colorado and maybe like alabama or something that's left i think they're perhaps the two that do have not had a woman governor and so there's a secretary of state who's a woman treasurer um i'm forgetting the other attorney general maybe and so it is a pretty um massive hell yeah for the state of massachusetts and the election of five women into five of the six positions um statewide so good for you massachusetts you're not all mass holes apparently so yay hey absolutely and can i throw one more hell yeah in yes, there lisa do it, do it. Uh, during our last podcast really quickly we talked about our uh recap of outspoken and uh-huh. one of our amazing uh keynoters jaja porter that spoke there about her business and all of her work and so forth Huge shout out to Jaja for completing her sixth full. Oh Iron yes, Man. Cozumel, right? Iron Man Cozumel, Woo-hoo! that's right. Iron Man Cozumel, we are so proud of you. We realized that you dedicated that particular race to your mother, um, and she uh, noted that she uh, spread her mother's ashes while she was there in Cozumel. So I know that the the race and the mm-hmm, setting was mm-hmm. meaningful to her for multiple reasons. So yeah. congratulations, Jaja. We are so proud of you on on multiple levels. We are so proud of you. Uh, but congratulations on number six. 
Go okay, her. now I'm going to add another hell yeah because um oh, do it. Do it. Sarah True won Ironman Arizona. So yes, uh, this yes, past yes, weekend yes. we had two outspoken keynotes who completed in an Ironman race and met their goals that they needed, right? With um Sarah True winning it. So um massive shout out to Sarah and to Jaja for kicking butt in your respective um, Iron Woman races. We really appreciate you and I'm very excited for you. So Lisa, what, what you're telling me is if we're really serious about doing a full Ironman, we just need to speak it outspoken. Let, let's do that. I mean, like, apparently that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And we might even win one if we do that because it's like hey. it's the outspoken bump. It's the outspoken <laughs> summit bump. Right. Exactly. Look, I'm not even greedy. I don't even need to win it. I just I can be last. I can be at 11.59.59 as long as I finish. That's all I care about. But congratulations. Clearly, outspoken is the key to being an amazing finisher. So congratulations, Sarah. Congratulations, Zaja. And uh, we're excited to see what you're going to do next. We are so excited about TryHard's new active foot care kit. Lord knows my feet need plenty of TLC after what I put them through. Included in the kit is an active foot soak, active foot exfoliating soap, and active foot pre and post workout spray. The foot soak gently cleanses and dries out blisters while relieving pain, itch, and eliminating odors. The exfoliating soap, which includes a pumice stone, prevents calluses, eases pain, and prevents the formation of bacteria causing fungus. And last but not least, the pre and post workout spray prevents blisters and irritation. Just spray it on your feet before working out. Once you're finished working out, you can also use it to disinfect and deodorize your shoes and feet. It's self-care season, so go ahead and treat yourself to some try-hard products. Use the code STAYFEISTY20 for 20% off the active foot care kit or any other products at tryhard.co. That's STAYFEISTY20 for 20% off at tryhard.co. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Millie Perry. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social media at try to defy, at Dr. Gold Speaks, or at Outspoken Women and Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time.